Open your Bibles with me, please, to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. The last jewel we looked at there is the dividing point in the book of Hebrews between verses 18 and 19. 19 begins the practical application of how it should affect our lives and what we should do by it because of it. I mentioned to you, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That sounds like a pretty confident person because of the boldness that we ought to have going to the presence of God through the new and living way of Jesus Christ. Last time we had communion, which was three weeks ago, I used Hebrews 10 and verse 29, where Paul warned these Hebrews that if they backslid and rejoined temple worship, that means they'd be choosing animal blood over the blood of the Son of God, and they would be counting the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. And my purpose was to point out how special the blood is that we're remembering through the Lord's Supper and the terrible punishment that was going to happen to anyone that went back and joined those Jews that preferred animal blood to the blood of the Son of God, the worst tribulation in the history of the world. But that's all I'm going to say about that now. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, and it doesn't have anything directly pertaining to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we come to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 1. Verse 1 is not what I need, but verse 1 is the one you're familiar with. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That's true. And amen. Thank you, Paul, for reminding us of that. The jewel here is that Jesus shed his blood, and you haven't. In your striving against sin, it's never brought you to the place of shedding blood. Now that could come to pass if we were martyrs, but then it still wouldn't be blood for our salvation. So Paul's argument is, you should look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our New Testament religious faith, because what he did is so much greater than anything you've ever done. You've never fought against sin and resisted to blood. It's never drawn blood. No one's ever cut you, pulled you apart in a rack, or pierced you in your fight against sin. And so it may seem minor to you, but the apostle is making that argument. Let's look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, that's the eternal joy of being at the right hand of God, That's where pleasures are forevermore in Psalm 16. That's Jesus at the right hand of God in Psalm 16. And we, because of him, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down. For we should consider him, and that's what we do at the Lord's Supper, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. We have a president that is being contradicted 
by anarchist socialist rebels in our nation, but think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was constantly contradicted, though he was performing miracles, the likes of which, and preaching truth, the likes of which our president has never dreamed of doing in comparison. And so we're supposed to consider that. Consider the contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds, because you've never put up with anything like he did, and you've never resisted against sin unto shedding blood. He's the bloodshedder. He's the one we celebrate today. And if Paul could say this to Jews that had the risk of persecution, what about us who have none? So it's all him. He endured. He despised the shame. We're not even shamed very often about our religion. We're not even contradicted that much. But he was. And so this is a jewel about the crucifixion that Paul wanted us to consider. Now in a passage that I have read to you so many times, and I'll still read it to you, it's verses 22 through 24. It is a one-sentence description of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I've read the whole thing to you. This time I'm just going to read verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. In verses 22 through 24, it's a one-sentence description of all the benefits of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which we join by baptism and faith in Christ. And we press into that kingdom by repentance that He can be our King. He's the Lord of my life. He is my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to serve Him and walk in newness of life. We make that commitment at baptism. And this describes, even for the Jews, and I don't want to get off on this point, those who believe in a future Jewish millennial kingdom are so filled with Jewish fables because it's not taught anywhere in the Bible. This is what Paul taught Jews when he had a Jewish audience for the only time in writing an epistle. He told them that the kingdom is spiritual and it is not on earth and it is a heavenly Jerusalem and it is a city above. And it's the spirits of just men made perfect. It's not them running around down here in some millennial kingdom. Unbelievable. Here's Paul, when he has a Jewish audience, telling them what they have to look forward to. There is no dispensational kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that was already in place. Enough about that. I want verse 24, that one of the benefits of this kingdom is that we are come to a mediator named Jesus of the new covenant, not the old covenant of the Old Testament, but the new covenant of the New Testament, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now Abel's blood spoke pretty good things. God accepted Abel's blood. Abel is mentioned through the Bible. Abel's in Hebrews 11. As by faith, Abel offered unto God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, by which it was declared that he was righteous. There are good things said about Abel, but Jesus' blood is better than Abel's. And you say, well, that, that seems to be a minor point. Let me share with you something again. Now, this may be new to you. I believe every word of God is pure. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I know it's not new. You've heard it a million times, and you're going to hear it two million more if I live long enough. 
Every word of God. Why would God bring that up? Because it's worth bringing up. While the Apostle Paul is at work with 303 verses to show that Jesus is superior to every aspect of the Old Testament, we might as well just run back to Genesis chapter 4 and find out that Jesus and his blood is better than the blood that Abel offered. The blood that Abel offered was by faith. The blood that Abel offered was declared him a righteous man by the way he offered it. And it was blood noted in the Bible. And Paul notes it right here. If Paul notes it right here, it's good enough for me to note it. It's one of my jewels. If you say my list would be shorter than yours, that's okay. I don't want an abbreviated edition of the Bible. And I don't mean... I, I love that little point. Here's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 1-2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's Peter using Old Testament words about blood being sprinkled, but it's Jesus' blood being sprinkled in heaven for me, one of his elect. You want to hear it again? Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when I, when I look down at this 24th verse, Lord, what do you want me to see in verse 24? To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Oh, I need that. He's the testator that died to put that new covenant into force and to the blood of sprinkling, because he sprinkles the elect in heaven for their eternal redemption that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's was just animal blood that was going to have to be repeated over and over. Jesus is better even than Abel. Right. I'm sorry if that one wasn't worth your time. Don't put anything in the offering box for that one. Because I'm content with it myself. Amen. And I don't, mean any, I don't mean any disrespect by it. I want you to love every word of God. Right. You should go back and read Genesis 4. You should go back and read Hebrews 11.4 about Abel. My Jesus is better. It's, Amen. A, it's a jewel. 13. Chapter 13. You said to me, I, I didn't think there was anything in the 13. I thought it was about marriage in verse 4 and about covetousness in verse 5 and about entertaining strangers in verse 2 and Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever in verse 8. Let's see. Let's see. Hebrews 13, 9. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Right. Amen and amen. What does it mean when it says, don't be carried about with meats? Old Testament religion. Meats, drinks, divers, washings. Don't get hung up on Old Testament junk. Get hung up and be established with grace. Let grace always trump the Old Testament. And this stuff that's going around today where Baptist churches are celebrating the Passover, they're celebrating Old Testament feasts, unbelievable. They're engaging with meats instead of grace. We don't do anything like that, and we're not going to do anything right. like that. So the warning is in verse 9, don't get excited about all their ordinances and ceremonies and rituals that involve meats and drinks and sacrifices. Just forget all that stuff and be established with grace. And if you feel like you're really missing out on a lot of stuff, we have an altar they can't approach. Now, 
Now that's a huge statement to a Jew. We have an altar that those priests can't get near. And that's verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Those priests of Aaron's proper lineage that were keeping the Old Testament temple form of worship could not approach the altar that we're part of that's in heaven where Jesus Christ offered himself once without spot. And we get to engage in that altar. And it, it says eating, because that's one thing you got to do with sacrifices is current benefit. But when the thing was offered, you got some chunks, the priest got some chunks, but we get to participate and we have the benefit of an altar in heaven. It's a jewel. Amen. So when Jews, if you're feeling like you're leaving a lot of good stuff behind, you have an altar they can't get near. Ah, because we're kings and priests at a different altar. An altar where the sacrifice has been made once for all. Jewel. We have a temple, we have an altar, we have a priest, and we have a sacrifice that even the Jews' religion, who were the proper men at the proper place, offering the proper sacrifices of the Old Testament, could not come to this our, our altar. Verse 11, for the bodies of those beasts, this is the day of atonement. I'm going to be short. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Very quickly, the jewel. On the Day of Atonement, there were animal sacrifices. The blood was shed, the blood was taken in, but the bodies of those, the carcasses, the bodies, were hauled outside of camp and burned. And so the Lord is drawing from that Old Testament ceremony of the Day of Atonement. He's drawing from it that those were taken out. And look at, the, look at that, even that type, even that shadow was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who was led away from Jerusalem to a place called the Skull, called Golgotha in the Hebrew, called Calvary. That's why it's a Calvary jewel, because he was, he was taken out of the city of Jerusalem to suffer on Calvary uh, at Golgotha, Golgotha. And so it fulfills even this. So it is a jewel in, in this respect that Jesus was taken outside the gate, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, just like those animals on the Day of Atonement were taken out as well. And the Apostle Paul drew a lesson from that. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. If he was hauled out like a beast that couldn't even be burned up on the altar, but had to be taken out and burned out like refuse outside, Jesus was taken out like that. So let's be willing to be taken out like that by the re religious world or the rest of this world to us. That's why Paul could say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Because the cross of Christ separates us from the world. So let's go forth outside the camp of organized religion, even where it is God's Old Testament religion, to be part of his new form of religion under Jesus Christ. I can't leave this off, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. This is a Jew, two Jews, that might be open to dispensationalism 
And he says, here we have no continuing city. They think Jerusalem's going to stay forever. But we have one, we seek one to come. That's because it's already in heaven and we're waiting for it to come down from heaven and all of us to be part of it. Are you willing to go forth outside the camp? Uh, that, that you're here today, you already have to some degree. Right. Does it bother you to go outside the camp to him? Nope. He went outside the camp for us. Right. Paul, Paul thought this was important enough to put it in his Bible. One more. I hope you like these little ones in Hebrews 13. Amen. Because I want you to like the Bible. Like, love it. Verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The God of peace. He is angry with the wicked every day. The God of peace? Yes. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that meant that his death satisfied God, so he raised him from the dead. That great shepherd of the sheep. He's called the good shepherd of the sheep in John 10. Here he's called the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Eternal life is a gift by God of an everlasting covenant promised before the world began to beneficiaries written in the Lamb's book of life through the blood of the everlasting covenant. But God isn't finished by saving us. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So it says, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, well-pleasing in his sight, and we're to work that out with fear and trembling. It's all because of, through, by, the means of Jesus Christ. And God gets all the glory forever and ever for such a plan of salvation. He is the God of peace. The jewel is Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. God raised him from the dead, and we have eternal life by the blood of the everlasting covenant. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.